Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm not just writing history. I am making it. I have the brain of a historian and the clapback of a comedian. You better come with sources, because I always check footnotes. Hello! Welcome back to another episode of Historians on Housewives. You're here with me, Casey. Hi, this is Jessica, Dr. J. Mill, the millionaires. Max Spear, brother, can you spare two dimes? <laughs> so... Today, we're going to talk yet again about the importance of fashion um, and clothing and what it can tell us about a historical time period. And I think that's so important for us before we jump into today's episode to reflect on the context in which we've already discussed fashion and historical time periods. So the very uh, first time and not on the podcast, but on our Twitter, that we talked about fashion and its significance. We were actually doing a really long tweet about Dr. Brenda Stevenson's work mm-hmm. during during this last season of Project Runway. Yes, my incomparable dissertation advisor. And and she does work on... on um, uh, Formerly enslaved for- women, <laughs> newly emancipated women, and how they used um, the politics of dress and particularly wedding dresses to kind of um, assert their newfound identity over having control over their marriages. Yeah. And I also heard her do a talk at a conference once uh, you were on the panel, right? Where she was talking about how um, women could even use their skill as seamstresses to run away and really blend into society, right? Because they were so skilled that no one would look at them and think that they weren't free black women. Um in the 19th century. Then we had Tanisha Ford on the podcast and she talked to us about um, 20th century context for fashion and black female socialites, right? And the very personal choices we make in our day-to-day, the kind of residuals that linger on our clothing, right? Those very intimacies, um, what it says about our identity and where we've been in life. Then we talked to Jennifer Edwards and we took it into like many, many centuries back. And she compared the housewife fashion and these glam squads to the way in which 
knights would be prepped for battle, right? In in this kind of medieval um, donning of armor analogy. And so today, instead, we're going to look at fashion and material culture um, for the implications it has for denoting your class status, your potential racial background, uh, your religious affiliations, and your place within the Spanish Empire in colonial Latin America in the 17th century. And we're going to think about the ways in which laws even dictated who had access to what kind of materials and fashions and and luxury items. So with that, let me introduce you to our scholar today, um, Haley Schroer. And she is a historian of colonial Latin America. And she focuses on the Spanish rule um, in in colonial Latin America from the late 15th century until the mid-19th century. Her particular research examines intersection of race and material culture in the 17th century. Within the unprecedented diversity of the Spanish Empire, the ability to determine one's ethnic caste often depended upon visual markers such as appearance. So her dissertation investigates the rise of socio-racial sumptuary legislation, which were statutes that barred select groups from wearing certain dress or using specific items throughout the empire. In layman's terms, she evaluates the ways in which inhabitants and government officials utilize goods like clothing to assign public racial identities. So her project not only evaluates the development of these legal statutes, but also the rejection of such prohibitions by indigenous, African, and mestizo communities. As a whole, then, she mostly spends time considering how legal, racial, and material history work together during the Spanish colonial period. Haley Schroer is a PhD candidate in the Department of History at the University of Texas at Austin, and she graduated summa cum laude from Texas Christian University in May 2016 and earned her MA from UT Austin in May of 2018. So with that, welcome Haley Schroer. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, even though it's probably super early for you guys, it's about, I mean, the sun's setting for me here. So thank God for technology now, right? Oh, how far ahead is Spain in time? Um, it is about 6.15. Um, yeah, so we're, with daylight savings, we bump a little closer, but then y'all bumped back too. So um, it's about, for California, I think it's about a nine-hour difference, I figured. Wow. Well, happy Friday night to you. Yeah, Yeah, thank you. Would you like to share your housewife's tagline with everybody? Sure. Um, So my tagline is three kids under 30. How about three degrees? (laughs) (laughs) Which like that really depends on the fact that I finished my PhD under 30. So we're like now that it's recorded for posterity's sake. It needs to happen. Yeah, because now that you've said it, like you have the benchmark. Yeah, now that I said it, it's going to, we got to be done. We got to track it. We're going to follow up like that movie, uh, 7-Up. You know, like every seven years, it's this documentary that follows um, the life of kids to adults and they track them every seven years. So Uh, now we're going to have to check back in with Haley in seven years. Yeah, the life of a graduate student. Uh (laughs) Did you get a job? Are you still okay? (laughs) So how did you get into Bravo viewing? So when I thought about this, um, I realized that I have absolutely no idea. Um, I've been watching The Housewives since probably at least high school. Um, 
And I Googled and it turns out that Orange County came out in 2006 and I was, I guess it would have been sixth grade at the time, which like I wasn't watching Real Housewives at like age 12, but definitely at some point um, in college or in high school, I must have stumbled upon the reality show. And, um, you know, I think the whole opulence and all of the, you know, just the material everywhere kind of drew me in. And then the constant sort of train wreck like drama kind of kept me in for years. Um, but yeah, it's been just a real, you know, especially getting into college and grad school. Um, it's a super great escape from, you know, nine hours of 17th century paleography to switch over to, you know, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and use a completely other side of my brain. So you are on a Fulbright in Spain and you've been doing research there. You also just indicated that you're going to Latin America on an SSRC fellowship. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. It's about 15 months um, of dissertation research. So kind of a long haul, but definitely worth it, you know, and then <laughs> to write it, that dissertation. It will be worth it. <laughs> it will be worth it in the end. So I'm going to take <laughs> you back to Austin, Texas, where you actually reside. And you've also spent time in Dallas. So how does Real Housewives of Dallas hold up for representing the dynamics that you see in and around Dallas? Yeah, so Austin is quite different um, from the rest of Texas and from Dallas. And I think the whole city of Austin might disown me if I claim that Dallas and Austin are similar in any way. Um, but they do share sort of the, the Texas culture, if you will. Um, but I did I did go to undergraduate um in Fort Worth, Texas, and I also had quite a few friends that moved to Dallas afterwards. So I know the DFW Metroplex pretty well. Um, and, you know, as a whole, um, Real Housewives of Dallas obviously does not do a great job of portraying um, the diversity of Dallas uh, as a city, um, you know, in general. But um, it does a really good job of uh, portraying the very, like, specific Highland Park, kind of uptown um, part of Dallas, where these women are residing. Um, and when, you know, Real Housewives of Dallas came out, I guess it's in its fourth season now. Um, you know, season one, uh, all of my friends were kind of living in that same neighborhood around SMU and Highland Park where they shoot a lot. Um, and so I had been in those areas. I existed in all these same spaces. Um, you know, obviously not in these giant mansions or anything, but off that, you know, same restaurants, whatever. Um, and to see that put on TV, um, you know, in a much more extravagant and sort of stylized sense was very weird to sort of see, you know, somewhere where you've been um, a lot of times and now it's on national television. But um, Real Housewives of Dallas, you know, in terms of culturally of the city, um, I think that they they do stay true to sort of the Highland Park ladies that, you know, are on the show. Um, they stick to filming in those specific groups. But, you know, I do I do wish that they would branch out. Obviously, maybe that's not um, sort of the end goal of the show, but there's so many other, you know, parts of Dallas that have a much more diverse scene, lots of different types of people. Um, and what they sort of portray on TV is, you know, your stereotypical affluent North Texan woman um so you know limited but at least you know mildly correct in what they're trying to portray if you will so this is really interesting because in Orange County the places that the women film are actually much closer to where 
Historians and Housewives headquarters is. It's much closer to ah. even where UCI is than where the women mostly live in Kodo. So, oh, yeah. so I'm not sure if that dynamic rings true for, for how they're filming in Dallas, because where these women are coming to, right, like Laguna Beach, it's pretty much around the corner from campus, right? We can get to Laguna Beach in 15 minutes. Our lives suck. <laughs> right? yeah, exactly. and, and what a terrible place for you. It is the worst place to live in and all the, of America. And the Crystal Cove <laughs> yeah. State Beach, which is like one of the most beautiful beaches, and it's a campground, and it's like by Heather Dubrow's house. Like Heather Dubrow lives literally around the corner from us. Uh, on a hill. I miss Heather Dubrow so much. And so it's oh really fascinating gosh. because most of these women – live so far away from where they're portraying their stomping ground is, right? It takes, for example, Tamara Judge at least 40 minutes, like if traffic is good to get from Kodo to everywhere they're shooting on the coast, which is where we are. Kodo's a schlock. Wow. Yeah, and so it's like really interesting because she's like portraying, and a lot of these women through the years, right, like Vicky and Gina Keogh have been portraying this very um, elitist, um, double gated, you know, look at this crazy lifestyle, but you know, their lifestyle looks completely different from somebody like right. Heather Dubrow, who actually lives in the place that they're trying to go to. Right. So like yeah. Heather's, so, Heather's yeah. sushi place is like down the street from us, right. That she would just wow. like hop in the car and like go around the corner and sweats for her sushi. Right. It's like, we are so much closer to that. And it's like a real, really a sign that Kodo was built in this very remote place. Like what come, like there's actually like a kind of like a state park right behind Kodo and then it's a totally different county. So it's like kind of one of the most removed places in Orange County because there's really nothing around it. Like if you're going to Kodo, it's because you live in Kodo. It's not like if you go to other parts of the county where you still might be 40 minutes from Laguna Beach, but you're bordering by all these other Orange County cities and things to do. Wow. So I wasn't so, yeah, sure really if, if Dallas kind of has that dynamic too. So I think maybe because OC is, you know, Orange County, you know, a county or whatever, but um, in Dallas, you know, the rest of them are, are cities. So I get, I would imagine that maybe there's a little bit less space. Um, but for Dallas, at least season one, I think, actually, I think Brandy still lives out in Plano, but Stephanie was in Las Colinas, I think, which is about, I mean, that's, 40 minute drive into Dallas where they were filming. And like, that's part of the storyline is that she moves and that, you know, Travis buys this house in Highland park in the Turtle Creek area. Um, that is like that Highland park and, and Preston hollow are two of some of the, you know, most affluent neighborhoods of Dallas, Dallas proper. Um, and so that to them kind of signaled this shift from, you know, the burbs where there are still massive houses, but now you're in sort of this, you know, neighborhood within Dallas that is sort of affluent, exclusive, and, you know, a very small part of Dallas. And they, I think that's, um, Carrie Duber's at the, uh, plastic surgery practice is kind of in that area. Um, most of the restaurants they saw that they might go to, you know, maybe some different trendy, restaurant areas um but mostly they're they're filming in uptown they're filming in highland park um so i'd say like total they're driving maybe 15 20 max like 30 minutes if they're filming um and like sometimes i think there was a season i think there's a scene where they went to fort worth for 
um, the honky tonk there. So that would be like 30, 40 minutes. But yeah, they're really complete opposite, I would say, of OC and that they're really filming in a, in a small zone um, and don't really leave sort of either the trendy or, you know, mm-hmm. Highland Park-ish areas. Who are your top three Bravo liberties? So my top three, I'm going to explain them as I go along. Um, you know, number one, forever number one, even though she's no longer on uh, Real Housewives of New York, but Bethany Frankel um, is my number one top three Bravo celebrity. She is an icon. She will never be replaced. I don't know how they're going to fill her spot on that show. Um, or what's going to happen well, to this you know, season. Luann and Ramona will be in nursing homes and wheelchairs refusing to give up their apples. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They'll, they'll be filming until the day they die. That, yeah. They're, and and they'll yeah. Be always, there'll always be drama because of how narcissistic they both are. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, Dorinda's a real, she'll, she'll throw in, she'll stir the pot if she needs to. But just like, you know, Bethany's, her attitude, just, you know, her, this straight at you kind of, kind of way that she talked to everyone. Just, oh man, it was a high quality, never going to, never going to be replaced. Um, and just her general success was amazing. But, you know, we're going to talk to you about fashion and, and clothing in a couple minutes, but I do mm-hmm. want to say that I feel like Bethany has one of the strongest jumpsuit games. I've good. I, I have to agree with that. Yes. She, yes, she really and Jessica knows loves a jumpsuit. jumpsuit. I love a jumpsuit or a romper. Oh, if I had the legs to wear a romper, it would be great. <laughs> remember, everyone has the legs to wear a romper. Everyone can wear a romper. Nah, everyone doesn't. But remember, <laughs> was it just this past season when Brit when Brittany, hello, which show are we on? <laughs> was it just this past season when Bethany had the kind of open belly kind of yes. Duster, and then she had those fabulous pants for on. her sequin party. Oh my goodness, that was wonderful! Oh yeah, yeah. Her her fashion. I mean, I'm trying to think back to the earlier seasons. I mean, we'll talk about this later, but I mean, it it she really stepped up her game early on, and then got into the sort of like upper echelon of fashionista level. Um, but she that is true. She she knows how to rock a jumpsuit probably more than anyone else on the Real Housewives franchise. Um, but so number two, um, I've got Kyle Richards, uh, also a staple of the Beverly Hills franchise. Um, unlike, you know, unlike Lisa Vanderpump, I'm clearly team Kyle over here. Um, unlike Lisa Vanderpump, she does embrace the messier side of her life and she shamelessly accepts her ridiculous over the top lifestyle habits. Um, you'll see her on scene just like, I think the the family photo scene in which she's trying to wrangle all of her kids, all of her dogs. One has like fled out the gate and she's just like running around like a chicken with a tag cut off is just so indicative of Kyle Richards on Beverly Hills um, and just fantastic. But okay, still we have to, to talk kind of, because yeah. I, I am also a Kyle Richards fan. I know I'm going to we're going to get so much hate for being Kyle Richards fan. But Jessica and Max are, 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 uh, Max and Jessica are so not on team Kyle. Not at all. Are you team Lisa? Um, I'm team Rena for sure. Oh, yeah. Rena's coming up next. Yeah. yeah, During, 
dog gate though. Puppy I, gate. Yeah, puppy gate. I took the side. I mean, I first took the side of Lucy Lucy Apple Juicy, but then I took yeah. the side of uh, Lisa Vanderpump on that. I mean, I'm just taking yeah. years worth of of Kyle. I I just I I love her like dorky dancing, and I if I never see her do another split, it, it'll be too much. I and always her like flipping it when her head around. Just oh, that, yeah. that it cracks me up. It's Ugh. just so it's so silly. I also yeah. I also just do enjoy her and Maurizio. I do yes. love Maurizio. Maurizio, I'm Maurizio is my really do love each other, and he yeah. is my favorite house husband. I think. Yeah, I so definitely I feel like feel I give conflict. Kyle more like more bonus points. I definitely feel conflicted yeah. about that because I do like Maurizio. I don't know everybody. Maurizio, Go ahead. I don't. Sorry, I just, Maurizio just seems it seems like a good guy, and like you know, I don't know him, but they seem like a good good couple at least. Um, but. Yeah, no, I was super team Kyle in terms of Puppygate. And I mean, just the whole Lisa drama and everything. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. So, I mean, I take LVP's side, but I also know to take note of the fact that her restaurants have caught on fire a lot. (laughs) Caught on fire a lot. Yeah. (laughs) I also think that I do believe LVP has been shady to Nini. Nini Leaks? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I'm I'm not oh. really cool with that. And I Nini also I, I just you know, I don't like the way L V P treats employees. I feel like L V P has a lot of control issues. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Well, yeah, just her I mean what, we could spend an entire episode probably on some puppy game, but like just her whole behavior with all and like the leaking of the stories and it's like there have been you know, every season they're like, Oh, Lisa Vanderpump week stories about me, blah, 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 blah. So I don't know. I just, in terms of that, I, I do, I take Kyle's side and I just, for some reason, I feel like she's a, she's a, a constant on Beverly Hills and, yeah. and it wouldn't be the same without her, but you know, everyone has yeah. their preferences. I think the other thing for me with Kyle, as opposed to someone like LVP, and that's kind of been like the big fracture for many years, right? Like mm-hmm. are you LVP? Are you Kyle? Like almost, you know, since very, very early seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and originally, obviously, were you team Camille or were you team Kyle? And Camille was just really unlikable. Yeah. For a very long well, time. Yeah, no argument. To no argument. Yeah. But, She's but, still unlikable. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, without her, yeah. there'd be no show at this point. But I do think that one of the things that is an instant automatic no for me with LVP is how she's constantly like, oh, I am like such an LGBTQ ally, but the way that this is in practice with the restaurant and even the Vanderpump Rules cast, it's it's like a very disgusting manipulation of that, uh, in, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Bravo manipulates things? I think LVP, <laughs> well, I think LVP um, wants to talk a big game in terms mm-hmm. of allyship, but if that was really the case, most of the people on the cast of Vanderpump Rules would have been let go for their very anti-LGBTQ stances a long time ago. Point taken. So we are only Sorry, your third, your third Bravo Wait, wait, wait. wait. This is irrelevant. (laughs) Sometimes I get the look because I'm irrelevant, but I want to know from (laughs) Haley, have you seen, since we're on Beverly Hills, has anyone been on the Facebook, the Facebook, the formal name, the Facebook or Instagram and seen kind of the meme with, um, Taylor fighting with someone and then there's little yes. cat. Oh my goodness. Yes. This is top of yes. the moment. This week's social media outtake 
is we don't even know what Taylor was fighting about, do we? Do you know what no, the scene is I from? It has to have been. I mean, it's been from so long ago. I don't remember. They what. talked about it on Watch What Happens Live, and for some reason, it just sort of like went over my head what the importance of that meme was i wish the cat was really part of the show because the cat now uh-huh. has replaced every bravo memory i have and all i can see is the meme so i would go as the cat for my mm-hmm. favorite bravo bravo yeah. but like the cat doesn't even exist it's something that someone sliced spliced in anyway it was relevant Casey. yeah no that's <laughs> it that is <laughs> that is a, a, a high quality meme that's going around right now and it, it's applicable for so many things so it's relevant for anything honestly um okay we but, hijacked yeah. your celebrities so <laughs> your third your third celebrity <laughs> no look kyle richards is i did not know this is a controversial figure um in yeah the, you wouldn't think you know, that <laughs> just in this just in this studio actually yeah. really on on social media too. yeah like, on twitter split. yeah yeah. Oh, okay. Well, but it's I okay because now I'll, we split everybody evenly on this podcast today. But we great, need Kyle. Great. We don't yeah. want Beverly. Happy to help. Yeah. yeah. Great. Wonderful. We're so fair and balanced yeah. here. <laughs> but you know, yeah. Hopefully, I'll round this out with like a all all around favorite. But the third one I have to say is Lisa Renna. I mean, no explanation needed. Her like confessional commentary alone just really carries the show. Sometimes, um, her like fights she starts and ends and like the glass throwing a couple seasons ago um just and like the qbc everything about her is just gold and yeah, if i you hope have she a stays QVC on this season forever right if you have a qvc line and you are in days of our lives not even talking about the adult underpants i mean this is the person <laughs> for me i feel like we need a yeah. round of applause because no one criticized rena way to go Claps for Rena, claps for Bethany. Everybody gets claps, except for Kyle Richard. <laughs> this is only because the sound tech is the person in charge of claps, yeah. and he's not Team Kyle. Yeah. The power. Well, I'll, yeah, I'll give claps for Kyle Richards over here. Okay. So. <laughs> so in your work on colonial Latin America, you focus on the ways in which identity was shaped based on laws that dictated who could wear certain items of clothing and who could use certain goods within the Spanish Empire. So how do the housewives and Bravo more broadly help us to better understand this aspect of your work? Yeah. So, I mean, Bravo as a network really depends upon overt material luxury to function. Um, The housewives franchise, Below Deck, Million Dollar Listing, um, really any of the other series on this network exist to offer a glimpse of some kind and to various aspects of the, of the rich and almost famous, right? Like they like to think they're more famous than they are. Um, the housewife shows in particular really demonstrate um, the relationship between appearance, materiality, and identity. Um, these producers, they'll select new cast members based on their supposed wealth, uh, which more often than not we see as the season progresses, um, is not what they say it is, um, right? It's, exist somewhere between what they're projecting and what reality is, but they're often brought onto the show, you know, based on who they are, um, where they live, you know, you know, who, what kind of businesses they have, um, that kind of situation. So it really, I mean, it functions on, on some level drama side, um, as the sort of, you know, glimpse into opulence really. Um, and my work in particular, at least in colonial Latin America, has much more of a socio-racial component. Um, 
and just to clarify that term, because I'll probably use it again, but, um, you know, in the colonial period, race, as, as we know it, um, wasn't, you know, what was really understood in that time. It wasn't fixed, you know, it wasn't something biological. Um, it was often sort of fluid based on both your social status, you know, your appearance, your behavior, and this is where my work comes in, kind of your clothing, how you portrayed yourself. Um, so much more of a fluid setting. Um, but so with this sort of socio-racial component, um, I'm using material items to kind of understand um, how different ethnic groups you know, attempted to portray themselves um, and how others attempted to control that sort of understanding of identity. Um, and, you know, Bravo in, in a sort of a separate sense and revealing sort of this, you know, upper echelon of society um, kind of demonstrates at least through the shows that you are in some sense what you own, right? Um, and this can kind of transfer over to my work and that a lot of ways in public life, um, people were perceived, you know, as what they what they looked like, what clothes they had, how how they would dress themselves. Um, are you being carried, you know, by a group of men on, you know, some some seat or whatever? Um, so there is sort of this shared component that uh, materiality or material luxury helps define who you are and, and where you sort of fit in in society. Um, just for the listeners, when you're talking about colonial Latin America and the Spanish empire, what time period is this that you're looking at? Um, so I am looking at the 17th century, um, but we can really say, you know, in terms of um, the sort of socio-racial division, um, that will that goes until, uh, I'd say, early 19th century um, with sort of the beginning of independence um, in the early 1800s. So obviously things change. It's not, you know, three, you know, three plus centuries of the same, but it is sort of this early modern understanding of what difference means, of what ethnic difference means or what ethnic status means um, in terms of that fluidity, in terms of um, understanding how one places oneself in society. So my particular work focuses on the 17th century, um, which is sort of home to a lot of change. Um, but you could say that there is some aspect of it from, you know, late 16th century up until independence in the 1800s. So we often talk about the ways that our projects pick us. How did your time working in the world of fashion help you come to your current research project? Uh, yeah, so I spent about, I guess, five years, um, obviously in conjunction with um, going to college, but spent about five years really working in sort of the fashion retail world um, on several levels, both as, you know, salesperson and also as, as a level of management. Um, and sort of through that, it that experience really demonstrated how intentional fashion is or how intentional clothing is, whether, you know, you're really cognizant of that or not. Um, on one aspect, you know, in terms of new collections coming in, fabrics, whatever, um, there would be discussion of, you know, of this national brand from, from executives of who is this brand, you know, what, what girl would buy this? What guy would buy this? Um, what kind of, who, who is this person? Kind of really trying to develop a personality based around this clothing. Um, as sort of, sort of the face-to-face -face aspect of, of just selling clothes, really, I mean, a myriad of people will come into the store and you can see there's a level of intentionality going in of, I, you know, I want to purchase this 
whatever because it can, you know, has maybe it's a graphic tee or whatever. And it says it's got, you know, ethical or political values or something on there that really represents what, you know, I feel like is a, is a belief of mine. But any, any type of clothing, any type of appearance um, isn't just some sort of, you know, frivolous expense, but it, it really shapes how, um, you know, your peers or people in public understand you before really having, having spoken to you. Um, so obviously the, the modern, you know, fashion consumer economy now is much different from, you know, dressing oneself in the 17th century, but there, you know, still is this level of intentionality that I found, you know, turning into historical studies and probably even more so in the 17th century, um, especially in, you know, Spanish America where I'm investigating that, um, appearance in a lot of ways spoke for individual status. It spoke for who you were in public life. Um, so really starting with that, that idea of intentionality, just seeing that, you know, day to day and, you know, things that can be such as silly as, you know, buying a shirt or, you know, whatever. Um, and then finding that in, in these laws that I researched that we'll talk about later um, in the 17th century and seeing that that is a really con- like a constant aspect of it really drew me into the research itself. And then sort of um, the mystery of, of understanding sort of socio-racial difference in colonial Spanish America is still such a very complex topic within the historiography. Um, so coming at it, I thought from sort of a material lens um, could add different insight than, um, than, you know, looking at it more from, from other aspects of looking at it from clothing might give us different, you know, perception into if you're on a street, um, how might I look at someone and, and see them based on, based on their clothing and everything. Um, so kind of started the spark, um, and then found a similarity within historical studies and just sort of exploded from there. So, sorry, <laughs> I was just going to, I was just going to make a clarifying point for our listeners, um, in case they aren't historians that when Haley or any of our other guests talk about this word historiography, it, it actually means the way historians talk about a particular historical topic, right? It's the ongoing conversation about an issue, an event, a person. Yeah. Yeah. My apologies. I, no, 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 um, it's Okay. <laughs> I just got done, what, in May, I guess, with my comprehensive exams where historiography is the only thing you're doing. So I think it's been embedded into my brain. <laughs> Congrats. <laughs> so, thanks. Thanks, guys. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. So that's that's great. Um, so on episode three, I believe we had Tanisha Ford on mm-hmm. and we talked quite a bit about fashion and kind of our favorite things that we wear, our favorite piece of clothing. Um, Casey wore her Christmas sweater when we taped our last episode. So my question for you is, is there kind of a, an iconic kind of look on housewives that is one of your favorites? If you had to really think about it. Oh, Ooh. Um, I think I have to go. I mean, Bethany Frankel and Kyle Richards. I always like their style, but I have to give props to Erica Jane for just, the originality of all of her outfits. Like I pro I like wouldn't wear 90% of them. Right. Because I'm not Erica Girardi and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not living her life, but just the, the risks that she takes and the sort of art level of art artistry that goes into some of these, these looks and these, you know, personas, if you will, <clears throat> is impressive for a reality show. 
Um, so I'd have to say probably maybe those three. I can't I can't think of a specific look per se, but um, general styles. I think I'd say maybe those three. So as historians and people in other disciplines talk about material culture a lot as well, but. As historians, we always talk about material culture and its importance. Can you explain what material culture is and the significance of studying it for a broad audience? Yeah, so material culture is really um, sort of looking, you know, basic looking at at objects, at things, um, and how they interact with different aspects of society, um, politics, economy, etc., um, in my case, it's more of a, you know, being a historian, not necessarily, you know, having anthropological training or history training. It's more of seeing how things show up in documents, um, like laws, and how we can then apply that um, to everyday life in 17th century Spanish America. Um, but I think material studies in general, um, you know, gives us a lot of understanding of things that we wouldn't necessarily maybe associate things with. Um, but really, material studies, material culture um, can act as a means to address social, political, and economic questions, right? I mean, any any given garment is always going to represent more, you know, speaking of garments, is going to represent more than, than fashion or more than that piece of clothing. Um, the production process is going to provide insight into financial and humanitarian realities, uh, you know, both in a historical setting as well as today when the fashion industry is a multi-million dollar, you know, industry. Um, the design is going to depend on international trade agreements. It's going to be, de- you know, depend on cultural, um, you know, values. It's going to often respond to sociopolitical issues. And in the case of my research, um, specific textiles are, you know, banned by for use by certain individuals. So it's a very sort of socio-political discussion going on there. Um, but then finally, when it's worn, like we've been talking about before, it, it gives the power of an individual to to recreate or alter individual identity. Um, so there's several stages in which things, objects, goods really interact with the broader world, both in contemporary life, but especially in, in the historical setting of trying to understand, you know, on an economic sense, um, you know, contraband, trade agreements, you know, um, stuff like that, and really understanding how things connected um, large groups of people. Um, the sort of work, you know, recent work coming out are, are focusing a lot on how the movement of things had actually connected the world a lot more than um, maybe we thought before. So it can really... Um, it can really link a lot of broader or, you know, otherwise um, disconnected questions together by understanding how things pass between different people and what those broader meanings um, could have. So one of the things I do with a new group of students at the start of a class is talk to them about primary sources, what counts as a primary source. And they always go to a piece of paper, right? And they think about documents and it's that moment where I tell them but what if we were a time capsule right like what if we were like frozen mm-hmm. in time you know like people at Mount Vesuvius and you know 50 100 plus years down the road someone found our class what would they find right and it's that moment when students are shocked to think about what they actually wore to class that day right. could matter 
right? That their whole, like everything that they collect or they wear, right? That like everything around them could be a source. And it's like this mind blowing moment. Um, and so with that, I was, I wanted you to talk to us more about how studying, you know, clothing, material culture, these laws, how does it give us a different understanding of historical relationships? And with that, how does materiality and one's attire alter individual behavior? Yeah. So, um, that first question again, I'm sorry, do you mind repeating that for me? Yeah. Yeah. Um, how does studying, you know, clothing, material culture, uh, give us a different understanding of historical relationships? Yeah, I think it can really help highlight the complexity of interactions, especially in the colonial world that, uh, you know, reading documents, you know, perhaps not necessarily related to my project specifically, but there are documents where goods are passed between from, you know, one ship to one trader to another other trader to an indigenous trader to, you know, a, an itinerant peddler of goods, if you will, um, to, you know, the contraband market, to all these different types of people um, that you just don't think about that, oh, you know, textiles, at least in Spain, textiles arrived from Spain, say to Mexico, um, from Mexico, they went to the markets, from markets, they went to people's homes. And that's just simply not the case. Um, there is so many different hands touching this in terms of production, in terms of purchasing, in terms of, of like categorizing and inventory and everything. Um, so there's much more complexity that you can see in terms of inter- individual interactions um, in, in a world that um, was quote unquote, you know, hierarchical in reality, obviously, you know, we've seen in, in, with works in the last couple of you know, decades and everything that it's a much more um, not, not so um, in terms of what reality was like. Um, but in, in terms of, of wearing clothing and, and sort of portraying individual identity, I think it also can highlight the slipperiness of what identity actually is, especially in this period. Um, if, you know, some, there are documents in which someone who's not of indigenous, you know, descent would put on, you know, indigenous clothing, clothing that only um, indigenous communities would wear because obviously there were rules in terms of that as well in order to get out of of certain, you know, political or economic obligations that other groups had that indigenous didn't. Um, And there's, you know, several cases of of people just rearranging their appearance essentially to to rearrange who they are in public life. Um, So I think both connection and also sort of this fluidity um, of identity, of, you know, status, of who one is based on, you know, um, how they portray themselves. Um, So I think, you know, that's particularly important in terms of individual behavior um, on Bravo, at least, um, you know, we see that there's been an increase in the last couple of years, especially in the last couple of seasons of a, you know, they're, everyone's upping their game in terms of their style. Um, and that has resulted, I think, in a much more sort of stylized, much more rigid presentation of personality and who someone is, right? And who their, who their character is on the show now um, really depends on, you know, how they're going to dress themselves. How, what, especially, and we'll talk about Erica Jane more, 
Um, but, you know, Erica Jane shows up in, in a particular outfit and that is her character. That is who she is going to be that day. Um, she's, you know, changed her tone. She's changed how she reacts to things. Um, so in one way, you know, this sort of increase and in, in focus on sort of this, you know, stylized fashion um, has created more rigidity, but it also kind of allows certain individuals on these shows to, to explore other facets of their personality and have viewers really understand, okay, this is <clears throat> Erica Girardi, but she is, you know, wearing this outfit and it has, you know, is playing this character, not, oh, that's, you know, part of Erica Girardi's personality, you know, end story. Um, it kind of gives at least her and, and other members that can do this as well, um, the freedom to, to act in different ways. And, and Lisa Renna does this a bit with her wigs, which I'll talk about in a second. But um, you also have sort of, you know, this iconic, you know, association of color. Like Vander, Lisa Vanderpump has pink. Cameron Westcott also is like pink everywhere. And she's claimed that color. That color now stands, you know, for, for those individuals rather than, you know, someone just wearing pink. Um, in terms of, Lisa Rinna's wigs. I believe she names them. I can't remember if you guys know, if you remember from a couple episodes of Watch What Happens Live, I think that she names her wigs. Um, but First of all, so- stop, stop, stop. I don't know why it's surprising to me that those are wigs because she's had the <laughs> same style for like 20, 25 <laughs> years and it's always perfect. So I just, I had to have this moment where I feel like my whole childhood has to be re-examined. Oh, no. Her, like, her iconic hair is her Is a her wig. Hair. I don't know why. No, 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 no. That's her hair. No, no, no. Oh, when okay. she switches it up, that's a wig. Oh, when she puts yeah. some extensions so, like, in or yeah. she does it straight. Within the okay. last, yeah. Ooh. Within the last year. The world's year, not broken. I honestly, it's okay. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah. Jessica yeah. literally looked like she was about to have the big one. I was one. like, how did I not <laughs> see that? I usually look at all of this. No, no, no. Just I feel like within the last year, she has taken it upon herself to to change her hair up i think i don't know because i think someone commented on it again at a reunion they did i think it was brandy it was brandy Mm -hmm. it was brandy yeah um so yeah and so at least on watch what happens live and some i feel like some other engagements but she's she's been wearing wigs a lot more and like her personality will change based on what wig she's wearing that day, you know, if it is it long hair, is it short hair, you know, um, depends on how she acts and everything. Um, so that sort of within Bravo, at least, um, you know, how materiality can alter individual behavior. I'm feeling particularly wicked today, but does this apply to when people also get, um, like nose jobs does Vicky's personality change with each nose iteration I just felt I just felt I couldn't I couldn't resist that it's definitely true for Jax (laughs) every time Jax got a new nose he would well maybe not as I'm saying this out loud like he would never actually change but he would always say like this is the time that I am changing it was a moment for like self-reference I feel like whenever Vicky gets plastic surgery, it's maybe not a personality change because that's never going to happen. But, like, she expects her life to change, right? Like, she kind of expects, like, oh, I'm going to, you know, find love or, oh, you know, I'm going to, you know, divorce or break up or whatever. I feel like there is some, some level of, like, when she gets a new chin or something, then something else happens in her life. Um, that it, it, there is some relationship, I feel like, between... <laughs> plastic surgery 
and how she wants her life to be going. Well, there's also this interesting connection in terms of what you're talking about in terms of this fluid identity um, and how your outfit, your attire can allow you to be seen as something or someone else or even give you that feeling that you're something or someone else, right? When you go back to Lisa Rinna's confrontation with Kim Richards um, at Kyle's Halloween slash Farrah birthday party, right? Because Lisa Rinna was like, no, as Erica Jane, I can be and be someone else, say something else. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Which I think is, is kind of speaking to your point that the, that, the way that people are perceiving you is, is, is a part of the fashion, but also based on what you're wearing, you can even perceive yourself as having different boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in terms of, you know, the Spanish America is like, there was such unprecedented diversity there. Um, so many different, you know, Africans, indigenous, uh, mestizos, Spaniards were all coming, you know, in this one space more so than probably had ever um, happened before. And, you know, a whole separate part of studying colonial Spanish America is this development of, of the caste system of, you know, a socio-racial hierarchy or whatever. Um, But one of the biggest fears is this idea of fluidity of, of fluidity of, of race, of fluidity of identity that um, if you can't easily tell that a mestizo is a mestizo, you know, what's going to happen if you can't easily in public life decipher between, you know, at, in reality, much, you know, a much smaller number of casts, but theoretically in law, you know, upwards of 16 different groups, um, you know, society is no longer going to function. Um, so it's this, this fear of, of ethnic fluidity and, and fluidity of identity um, and sort of a socio-racial sense that really, um, is sort of the underbelly of a, a lot of racialized laws, but in particular, um, the rise of these clothing laws that my research really focuses on that, um, if, you know, if in public life, if a, if a, you know, mulatto is wearing velvet where only a Spaniard can, and a mulatto would be someone of Spanish and African descent, you know, of mixed descent, um, then, then that's clearly breaking the the caste system that if they're dressing like a Spaniard, then they must be a Spaniard. You know, if you know, if you're dressing like an indigenous person, you must be an indigenous person. Um, so there's this anxiety of of increasing diversity, of of increasing groups of people, um, and no concrete way of being able to differentiate between them. Um, in part, really gives rise to these particular clothing laws. So there is, you know, separate, very separate, you know colonial Spanish America and Bravo, but there is this idea of, of a fluidity of identity that you see between both of those that um, depending on your appearance or depending on, um, you know, in, in the housewife's case, depending perhaps on the wig you're wearing, um, you can act like a different person and others can perceive you as such. Um, so two very different situations, but this, you know, shared kind of understanding of how materiality can can alter and sort of increase the fluidity of individual behavior and and understanding really. So I wanted I just want to do a clarification on language. First of all, how you broke that down was was great. And I think we actually experience that even when we go into a classroom, right? You know when you go into the big lecture classroom, um, 
you have to wear, especially if you're short or a woman, you have to be suited mm-hmm. and booted and look ferocious, right? Right, um, right. You know, whereas you have a smaller class, like you can go in in jeans sometimes or what have you, if you're already if you already have tenure. So I just think right. that we yeah. as academics know that there's also a perception in clothing. Um, but I want to go back to the term mulatto just for the people who are listening and to say that in the U.S. context, when we talk about mixed race people, we know that that term is outdated. For our listeners, when you look at colonial Latin America, when you look at um, the history that's being done there, mulatto is still a valid term. I just wanted to point that out because if you come to this show and you listen and you're hung up on certain things like racial categories, um, that could be in some ways kind of a, a reason to start. I always have this image now when we do this podcast of me driving down the 405 saying, what did she say? So I just wanted to clarify right. for our listeners that you are not you are not being politically incorrect. This no. is the historical term, and, and this is what scholars of Spanish America use because it was an actual racial category and even a caste co- category, correct? Yes, yeah. It was a legal category as well. That's so, a better answer, yes. so a legal yes. category. Yes, yes. Well, and it's yes. really no, important, I, <laughs> right, to, to also point out, as, as you and Jessica are doing right now, that the history of racial formation does look different if you're talking about the British colonies it does. in in in, yeah. um, the, yeah. in America versus um, you know Spanish colonies in America. These histories are different. They're um, not. It's not a one to one. Right. Um, one of the things that came to mind as you were talking a second ago, um, it was it took me back to um, Kathy Brown's. Mm-hmm wonderful book foul bodies Mm -hmm. where she kind of did this work on material culture in um in the british colonies and in north america and one of her chapters was on the importance of linen and who got to wear linen right and Mm -hmm. what linen Mm -hmm. meant in terms of your relationship to to the british metropole so i was i was thinking about that as you were talking and and maybe maybe the significance Mm -hmm. of very very specific kinds of even fabrics and mm-hmm. what that can yes, say yeah. about who you are, who you have access to, what kind of power you actually wield in society and how, yeah. um, and how even just donning that kind of, of material can give it you conveys a person, a particular kind yeah. of person. And it gives you a different kind of mobility. Well, yeah. I mean, it can even convey understandings of, of like of health or personal hygiene. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm thinking France, 19th century, you know, linen, mentioning linen, you, you know, everyone, if they could afford it, wanted linen, because if you owned linen, then it, it was seen as, you know, you had good personal hygiene, or that you were, you know, a, a civilized person, you, you wore linen, etc. you could clean it, whatever. Um, so it, it, specific textiles themselves can have really um, pointed connotations in terms of, of not even just status of of you know at least in in British North America during the colonial period of of belonging to like you said this this sort of British metropole but also you know individual standards of of, of civility of personality of whatever um, so there can be um, very sort of complex connotations associated with uh, specific textiles mm-hmm. in particular but yes no I did I'm thank you for clarifying the the terminology of mulatto and everything it is. It is a, a legal term, especially in Spanish America, colonial period, um, that is particular to a group. But um, 
has a much, much different connotation in, in um, contemporary world and especially in North America um, as well. So thank you for that clarification I'm on my behalf. No, no, it was it was a clarification for the audience. You 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 were great. You were great. Um, but I just think that, you know, we are, if not anything, people that do footnotes and have to over explain everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I really appreciate your intervention. Um so guess what time it is? It's it's Casey's favorite time it's of the, the time show. It's the time for the Bonco party. Woo. Yay. And okay, so because I'm going to just call you a fashionista with your oh, thank you. <laughs> with your career in fashion and now that you're working on, you know, clothing and material culture. I just felt like fashion you're a you're a fashionista historian and jessica is all about i will take that term yeah i will take that term jessica is also a bit of a fashionista i can turn it up i can turn it up so today's game (laughs) is called fashion faux pas and the goal is for you and jessica and max to decide if the iconic look that i throw out wins the runway or if it needs some work Great. Okay. How will I see these? The same way we do. I think we're imagining. Yes, I'm gonna. Des- oh, great. I'm gonna. Des- I'm gonna describe them. Um, Perfect for, for the audience as well. Okay. We just assumed everybody has a laptop with them and Google, well, and they're ready to look up. I tried. <laughs> I really tried to pick stuff that you can instantly see in your mind's eye. Yeah, these are. But I do have. I have Google like close at hand so i can google as well so the first one is the orange county face leggings that shannon had made for the trip to the spa in arizona so she she made these leggings that everybody had to wear and the face of the all the current cast members from this new season are on these leggings, right? So it's Vicky's face, it's Tamara's face, it's Shannon's face, Kelly. On, on a black background. On, on, yeah. the, on the black leggings. And so they had these matching black leggings that they were all supposed to wear at the same time. What um, I mean, what I loved the most is that literally no one explained to them. <laughs> like, <laughs> like there was no, no comment. And like, that scene, like, I think Gina and um, Emily are, like, having a fight. Yes. And they're just sitting there in their face <laughs> leggings, and no one is bringing it up. Like, no one mentions you're just sitting there in face leggings at any point in, the, in like, the whole day that they're all wearing this. No one says anything. And so you're just like, what is going on here? Like, what are you doing? And for that, I love them just because they just were so weird and no one mentioned it at all that I just really loved the face leggings. What I like to think about those leggings is that they actually did explain, but that the editors cut, cut it out. They were like, there's no explanation needed. We don't need to tell <laughs> yeah. them. Well, yeah. they, they, no, they told I'm us sure, enough yeah. to know that Shannon had them made thinking that it would be a bonding experience because they would have to be wearing everybody's face. It's making me itch. I'm looking at an image. It's making me itch. All I can think about is... 
Tamra being on my ass, and I don't like it. <laughs> what would you do if I showed up to work and I was just wearing leggings with your face on them, Jessica? With my face? Well, I would yeah. say that is so fashion forward, but not appropriate. <laughs> not appropriate. <laughs> and I think your wife might also have questions. Well, she'll be on there too. I know. Oh. I know how she feels about it. She would love that. <laughs> so I do not think that the leggings by themselves work. Is it only the leggings or are they going to have like a, a sparkly top or that l- long duster on? Is it just the leggings for the runway look? Like, what Yeah, are we we're here? evaluating the leggings. Does the, the le- do the leggings work on the runway? Oh, on the runway. They have to be in the co- not in the context that they were used? I'm saying if Is they walk the... Is it a runway the, look? If they walk uh, the runway in, in what they're wearing in Arizona, those leggings as they... Bicker on the bench. I Does would, it win the runway or is it a fashion faux pas? It's definitely a fashion faux pas, but I would love seeing that on the runway. <laughs> I would laugh so yeah. hard. See, I feel like I have to, just for the fact, the leggings themselves, obviously hideous, but the fact that like Shannon had them made for everyone, that they just all wore them, that in Arizona, in this like horrendous, bonding trip like everything that goes into these leggings i think really earns their right on the runway leggings aside sans you know the context with it probably not but with the context it's just it's gold and i don't necessarily agree with this interpretation of events but um shannon believes during this trip that kelly assaulted her by hitting the sound bowl and i just like to think that like shannon is dealing with so much um, cognitive dissonance of like I made these leggings and you and you, <laughs> and you hit me. me. There's there's <laughs> a relationship. <laughs> there's something about that that's endearing to me. Yeah, about Shannon. Yeah, I agree. Well, yeah, I'm going to say that as much as uh, it makes me itch, and I again don't want Tamara on my ass. I have to say that if we had a different context and Kanye or the Kardashians made these face leggings, I guarantee they would sell for thousands of dollars. That's crazy. So I'm yeah. going to say that, yes, this can be a runway look. Okay. The next one. I'm calling this look Dorit's tin foil hair. Do you guys remember the party? Oh, without question. It's it's like the it's like the season finale episodes it's like that two-part party and it's the end of her first season so she's having the constant ongoing tension with erica over panty gate (laughs) and she shows up and it like literally looks like she's plastered her hair in tinfoil like she's like waiting for martians or something who doesn't like that look Go ahead, Haley. Go ahead. Sorry. And that looks, I, it just scares me to look at a bit. And she's kind of uh, all in metallic. Like her entire outfit is, is essentially like sparkly metallic. She's like fashion forward QAnon with this thing. <laughs> I have to say that it'll work. Who doesn't want to look like they're walking around getting their highlights done every single day on the yeah. runway? Like I have to, that, that works. I feel like she needs to stay I really think- far away from a microwave. Yeah, or anyone looks, who has metal in their teeth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it just looks like like not quite done right. Like I feel like I understand what the goal was, but the execution looks a little frightening. Like, yeah, it's the texture. It's gotta be. 
the gold on the way that her hair is is like also slicked back. Something about it. I it, I can't. Mm-mm. Okay, so she would not win in any way if we had. Um, why did I just forget the runway show that Bravo Project Runway? <laughs> why did I just forget? Project Runway. So Christian Soriano would not be in favor of this. Tim Gunn would not be in favor of this. You just don't think it's executed well. TSA wouldn't be in favor of this. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see that. Dury trying to get through airport security with that. Actually, she could probably do it. Do we think the OC face leggings are a better look than Dorit's yes. tinfoil hair? Yeah, easy. Yeah. I'll agree with that. Okay. She seems like she's worried that the government's going to listen to her brainwaves. Yes, <laughs> like, I agree with that statement. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. like this like Alex Jones quality to her of like the government's here. They're going to listen in. She, she, and, and this would be consistent with her character because she really thinks that people care that much. Yeah. Well, but don't bump. Well, she does have a film crew following her around. She does. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. I'm looking and but there's so many iterations of that iconic look that she's taken into other spaces yeah. or non-iconic look. So thank you to our friends at Google for showing me that she, this is the look that she wouldn't let die. Mm-hmm. There's several iterations of I this. I mean, it's not super different as far as I'm concerned, to the million um, clips, metallic clips she put in her See, hair for I the like last the reunion. Better. The clips look better. Oh, I preferred yeah. the other one better than the clips. The clips seemed a little, like that took a long time to do. This thing yeah. looked like she just sort of put it on. I'm sure like, it took longer. But. I feel like the clips would have given her a migraine. Like who wants that many clips? There's no way that your head comfortable at all. No, <laughs> yeah. absolutely not. Yeah. So the next one, Jennifer Aiden's new Ronge confessional look. Dolores um, described this look as, I think, uh, uh, auditioning for the Pirates of the Caribbean musical. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Andy Cohen felt like it was like modernized 80s, but it's like. It's like Cyndi Lauper in a funhouse. It's it's red with like black accents, big puffy shoulders. Oh yeah, like her hair is like super incredibly teased up. Oh, like big, and pearl necklace and, and everything, and, and the pearl Chanel necklaces. It's like a double. It's like a multi-layered necklace. Well, I have to say that that look was the only thing that kept me awake um, while watching Ronge as of late. I don't know if it would make it on the runway, but to me, it was the the more interesting storyline or look of the new cast members, because I, you know, I just can't get with Ronj without the Manzos. I'm sorry. Yeah, Jessica's still bitter classic. about the Manzos. I am. <laughs> she's not, she's never going to let go. Mm-mm. They think. were, I mean, they were classic members of that show. They definitely were classic members of the show. I do think though that Ronj is going to single-handedly save Bravo's like, all, all their housewife shows, I think uh, Ronge is going to have. They're going to bring it the most. They're going to bring because it the remember, most. Andy is lucky that this happened to the Judice. 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 Well, it depends on how Teresa decides to spell the last, speak the last name. You know, there was a minute in the very beginning that she screwed up her own last name. So, I know. Judice. I, I always Judice. say. Judice. Yeah. Yeah. I always say Guidici. Guidici. Well, at any rate, I do think that uh, Ronge will probably, will probably save the franchise mm-hmm. because again, Joe is the luckiest thing to ever happen to Bravo yeah. and Andy. Yeah. He is very messy. Yeah. 
Yeah, I still say I would love to watch that fight between Joe and Ramona and Vicky Gumbelson over, like, just watch them cage match battle it out over who's been the most important to Bravo. (laughs) (laughs) That would be amazing. That's my fan fiction. Watch it happens live special. I mean, they could even do it like a like a debate. Like you have all three of them at podiums a on debate. a stage. A yeah. debate. Yeah, a debate. a debate. Yeah, they could argue about it. It's not going to get further than like a few words before we get into cage match territory. Oh, but we could have like the moment you know, of decorum. Ramona before. would take that seriously. Mm-hmm. She'd come up with some like roller coaster of an argument. Like she'd show up in Ramona blue. Yes. Yeah. Oh, of course. Okay, but so Jennifer's look. I'm going to say, say, though it was the only thing that kept my attention, I will say, "Mm, I'm not sure. I'm going to defer to the fashion expert on the panel. That's Uh, not you, Max. I was going to say, you're (laughs) looking at me. (laughs) So, whether we like it or not, the 80s are back in terms of fashion. Um, They're here. Like, the puff shoulders are everywhere. Like, it's back. So, I guess in terms of like just following that and Dorit also went 80s crazy um, this past season but it's not great it's not terrible I'd say it's better than the the tinfoil but still not as great as those face leggings I love that you're able to rank these in such a <laughs> in such a, a thoughtful way yeah she's a professional <laughs> I have to say I did not think her lipstick went well with the outfit that's all I'm no. gonna say. Controversial view. No, that, that was my way of being like, I don't really like her outfit, but like, yeah, if I had to pick something, it's probably the lipstick. I don't know. I don't have much of a take on it, except I don't really like it. And it's, even if the yeah. 80s are back, like, let's go with the fa- let's go with the expert on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To me, I thought it just seemed a little thirsty. But you're supposed to be impartial. I am. <laughs> and you're saying that a housewife was actually look, appearing a little thirsty. She was trying a little hard, I think. I think a she was housewife. trying to, yeah. but, but you know, it's, a housewife was trying a little I mean, hard. but you know, like how hard <laughs> Cynthia's trying to get her proposal right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like Jennifer Aiden was on like Cynthia level thirsty for like her confessional look. Okay, the Cynthia level, the Cynthia level or Dorit, yeah. The Cynthia level thirsty about a proposal or the Kenya Moore level of thirsty for a child and proposal. I mean, now we're splitting hairs. (laughs) I don't know if we are. (laughs) So are we are okay, so Jennifer's look whatever whatever our expert says. Okay. It, yeah, it was fine. It's fine. Not great. Not the worst I've seen. I don't like it, but I, but I, I dislike the hair foil more. What about Raquel's fluffy Vanderpump re, uh, Vanderpump Rules reunion look from this last season? So it was kind of, it was like these big, like over the shoulder down the back kind of shoulder poofs as if um you know like when you when you're in elementary school and you like kind of make those those paper trains or whatever where you like fashionably cut and then it like poofs out and you have that like you know cookie cutter copy down the line but if that was like went went up and down her shoulders in white. Clearly, it did yeah. not strike any kind of memory in any of us. So I don't know if it has staying power. Oh, I remember Max that look. Max oh, no. super nice. I knew this outfit. And frankly, I think 
it's iconic. Not because it's great by any means, but I think that like I immediately when you said Raquel, I immediately knew that all the outfit. Yeah. yeah. It, it the way that she came into the room and owned it probably more than any of the other outfits we have talked about. She came in like she was walking on a runway. Like she knew what this outfit was going to do and I say kudos to Raquel for that outfit. Max is the most passionate about this outfit. <laughs> I'm I'm going to defer to the Vanderpump uh aficionado. Yeah, I also always like to be like pushing a heavy boulder uphill so i recognize that this outfit isn't the most stunning and i really want to like challenge us to like fight against that or <laughs> to just slag it because she got a lot of flack for that outfit it's doing a lot though like there's a lot of components to that outfit that like so many like statement shoulder slash arm lace like full-on lace asymmetric neckline we've got a belt but there's also an asymmetric like, you know, fabric hanging down from the belt. There's a zigzag hemline. Like, everything's happening here. Every, like, any, any, any possible embellishment and or, you know, construction. Oh, there, oh I forgot. Probably padded shoulders and mm-hmm. long sleeves. Mm-hmm. Everything. Everything's on this dress. What story is this piece telling, Max? If this walked down the runway, what story would this piece <laughs> be telling? The story of... Somebody that walked through Swan Lake and murdered two swans and just attached them to her shoulders. <laughs> that sounds yeah. accurate. That's that sounds right. Yeah, Honestly, I know. It I looks feel that like, way. I feel like this look says, I'm coming for you, witches of WeHo. Oh, oh yeah yes. there's a little bit of like bubble bubble toil and trouble to this like, like watch oh, me anchor a new season galinda the good witch that's definitely yeah what it looks like yeah, yeah kind of yeah yeah i think I it would work that. on a runway it would work because mm-hmm. there's so many stories that can be told yeah, yeah. <laughs> poor execution weird execution swans i mean it can go so many ways yeah well, any yeah, it's a story for anybody. It's like the entire collection, all the pieces formulated in this particular piece. Like we can see all the eight or nine other pieces in someone's line encapsulated in this one piece. Yeah. Multitasking. Well, well, that's for sure. <laughs> well, that concludes our Bonko party. Oh, I think that was one of my favorite games. Oh, that was very fun. Wonderful. Let's Jessica loves it when I when she doesn't have to do like season and franchise and yeah, she no. doesn't do the trivia. I don't do the trivia. <laughs> I was, you know, that's when I was just watching the show and I was in the closet with my Bravo demicking. I didn't know I was supposed to be taking notes. You were just like, move over, yeah. Kelly Osborne. I am now on exactly. Fashion Police. Exactly. <laughs> and, yeah. and actually, I really think I could have been good on Fashion Police. Okay. I think I you could have too. I could. Melissa, Melissa Rivers, if you're out there, you want to bring it back. I, I'm, I'm the person. <laughs> Maybe we'll do like a podcast version one day of Fashion Police as like an ad. Oh, that'd thing. be great. That might be a good idea. So back to the interview. <laughs> Can you talk to us a bit more about this intimate relationship between appearance and identity as it appears in your own work and how we can see these themes on Bravo, especially if we're thinking about contrast between Orange County, Beverly Hills, and New York. Yeah, so for just to start with uh, OC, um, for OC, for example, in the you know first episode of this latest season, um, yeah, it was this latest, yes, this latest season, um, Tamara repeats, you know, at least 
three times and, and one confessional that her new home is in, in Kodo. It's behind a gated community within a gated community that there's two gates, you know, one gate more than, uh, than Vicky, I think she said. Um, <laughs> and it, like, <laughs> I think it comes back up and, and watch what happens live. And it's, you know, kind of this idea of why does she place so much importance on two gates? You know, it's, it's two gates is already a gated community. Like, great. Um, but she explains kind of in this you know, Watch What Happens Live episode that um, in a way this this new home that she now has signifies her return to the ultra elite circle of Orange County that she left when she divorced Simon. So, you know, following the divorce of Simon is sort of this, you know, I, fall from the upper echelons of, of Orange County. Um, you know, she's moving somewhere else. She's you know, dating other people. You see when she marries Eddie, you know, it's a, it's a smaller house, you know, each house in each season kind of gets consecutively bigger. And to her, it kind of signifies this like material return to her, you know, first couple seasons on Orange County that she's now, you know, two gates in a gated community behind two gates. Um, and the physical presence of those gates function in a way as symbols of her, renewed affluence or her renewed belonging, I guess, on the show. Um, and, you know, then shifting from OC uh, to Beverly Hills, I'd say Beverly Hills perhaps more so um, than OC. Probably, I would say, maybe the most of the Housewives franchise um, really depends a lot upon appearance as identity. Um, and in particular, I, I want to talk about Erica Girardi and Dorit Kemsley. Um, both are confessional looks, but also just their, you know, general attire while filming. Um, so in terms of um, Erica Girardi, also known Erica Jane, um, and especially in the last, you know, couple seasons, she's really curated this group of characters, both in her confessionals and in scenes that, like we've talked about earlier, reflect really different behavioral aspects of her personality. Um, and I think we'll talk a little bit more about her confessional work a little bit um, down the line. But if you think about, you know, her first couple of seasons, it's really this dynamic between Erica Girardi as a person and Erica Jane as a stage personality. Um, but within the last few seasons, with sort of the increase of her glam squad and everything, every outing is really a portrayal of a different character, of a different aspect of Erica Girardi. You almost never, you know, I would say that you almost never see Erica Girardi the person um, while filming on this show. It is always some some facet or some personality. Um, and there have been, you know, interviews with her in which she kind of states that, you know, I use fashion as a type of art to demonstrate, you know, who, what personality, what character do I want to be today? Um, and I really think that she highlights that and really depends on that in The Real Housewives um, to portray different characters so that she's not sort of putting out her own personality to be sort of slaughtered by reality TV and by the other people on the cast. Um, it, it gives her at least the ability to put up a front, to put up a character and say, okay, this behavior is this particular character based on the outfit that I'm wearing. Now, much like Dorit, um, different in a sense, but much like Dorit, or much like Erica, um, Dorit Kemsley also uses materiality to anchor her storyline. Um, so whereas, you know, Erica Girardi, we see wears 10 to 20 different outfits, you know, on a season um, and has different personalities, different characteristics for each one. 
especially in this last season, Dorit had a very roller coaster of a season, but her aesthetic, her, her style was always the same. Um, you see uh, much like Erica does, um, a little bit this season as well, but, um, the 1980s excess, you know, the hair, the, the curls, the sort of the fashion that's very indicative of the 1980s. Um, but she doesn't really change from that. So like across episodes, she's really like, that is her style for the season. I think there's like the visor episode and like, um, you know, the high cut swimsuit and everything. So it's a very consistent style. And in a way, especially with this season, with like Puppy Gate, everything's going crazy. You know, Dorit kind of has a, a, a crazy season. Um, and her, like her behavior fluctuates a lot. She's upset a lot. She's, she is, you know, really um, showing a lot of strong emotions, a lot of dramatic story arcs. Um, but she does have sort of a cohesive aesthetic throughout all of this that I would maybe say um, kind of gives her, you know, based on this show that is based on viewers and based on ratings, a cohesive aesthetic gives her the ability to sort of develop a consistent rapport with her viewers, you know, based on her you know, her physical appearance, based on her attire. So kind of cre- creating this consistency, um, you know, based on identity, but with materiality, um, in a season in which she's really going off the rails a lot, there's a lot of, you know, she's, you know, a lot of fights, a lot of you know, emotional differences um, that for viewers would give a lot of instability, you know, to her character, to her position on the season. Um, but her style kind of, I would say, gives a little bit of dependability. I mean, not much, right? But it is a sense of dependability in that um, she she is consistent across the board of, of, you know, what her attire looks like. Um, and so, you know, this in a way can, the contrast between Erica and Dorit can really highlight the ways that clothing on Beverly Hills, um, reflects both, reflects and alters public identity. So, you know, Dorit may want consistency, may want stability. Erica Jane wants the freedom to really portray whichever facet of her personality that she wants to at the time. Um, so, you know, using it for different ways, but obviously, you know, a, a very clear manipulation of materiality, um, to, you know, portray one's personality, one's identity in a very public way. Um, finally, we can't not talk about materiality without talking about Giovanni because that is infamous and will live down in the Real Housewives of New York City forever. Um, so we've got Dur- or, sorry, Dorinda and Luann. Um, and this, you know, gown that Dorinda lends land for her cabaret um, without, you know, thanks, according to Dorinda. And this gown, <laughs> at least in the last season, um, turns into to questions of not only like interpersonal communication of sort of understanding, you know, what is gratitude between friends? How does one express gratitude? Um, what is a personal bond between one person or the other? Um, but also this larger understanding that um, is big in anthropology of understanding the role of personal favors or gifts. So how do gifts or favors work within, you know, interpersonal relationships? Um, and the Giovanni problem, as ridiculous as it is, kind of highlights this this clash between what Dorenda was expecting and what Luann was expecting. Um, and then Luann, of course, you know, takes further advantage of this entire situation um, and the social capital now that the word Giovanni, that this you know whole drama about Giovanni has, 
and creates a song about it. So she now capitalizes on that economically with feeling Giovanni and all the performances that follows after that. So one single dress, you know, a series of dresses for an opener for a cabaret turns into, you know, questions of interpersonal communication, turns into questions of gift giving, of personal favors, and then how, you know, situations like that can really reap economic gain for certain individuals that um, were, you know, part of this, this question um, about the Giovanni dresses. So while, it, you know, at, you know, looking at it just as it is, it might seem, you know, like, oh, two women are fighting about lending a pair, you know, some dresses to one. But it's actually a lot more complicated. It, it actually, you know, highlights not only, you know, behavioral issues, but also understandings of, of relationships um, and things like that. So it's actually much more complicated than um, you might see just on the show. Um, so I'd say maybe those three-ish examples would be, you know, really pertinent examples of how materiality, the use of materiality um, is seen on Bravo and how it can really have deeper understandings other than, you know, wealth and opulence. Were there specific moments within the Spanish Empire where people were expected to craft their identity in a certain way? Yes. Um, So, I mean, three big ways that I would say would be sort of socio-racial, which we've already talked about a bit um, earlier, religious, um, and this idea of administrative or, or sort of government um, hierarchy. So obviously, um, you know, some sure laws or clothing laws, um, as could be termed. Uh, first and foremost, um, what I'm sort of researching is um, how laws, you know, prevented or ordered individual, you know, socio-racial groups to wear or refrain from wearing certain items. And so that sort of covers the sort of socio-racial aspects where in public life, people were expected to dress towards um, their their caste status um, or, or, you know, what what caste they pertain to. Obviously, that did not happen. You could be, you know, five to ten different castes in your lifetime, depending on, you know, who you were talking to or whatever. We also have religious. Um, and another, you know, facet of my investigation looks at how um, religious heretics uh, in the Inquisition, so convicted Jews um, who were already sentenced to punishment um, to a certain amount of years, you know, in re- rehabilitation, basically back um, into the Catholic Church, were required and expected to wear particular clothing. Um, so they were required to wear the, these vests. Um, best type situations at all times in public life. They didn't have to wear it in private, um, but in public, if you were out in public, you were required to wear these items. So it is the sense of you are expected to wear this vest to demonstrate that you are a heretic and that is your identity. Um, so that's sort of a, a, in a sense of a religious way of also um, attempting to differentiate between the other, between, you know, uh, n- normative Catholic society and those who have been convicted for heresy. Um, so much like these, you know, socio-racial groups that are barred from clothing because they're not Spanish, these convicted heretics are barred from certain clothing because they've been convicted for practicing Judaism. Or um, sometimes it was, it was a Protestant faith as well. Um, finally, this idea of administrative sort of expectations were, you know, less punitive, but there were 
laws, expectations that um, government officials must always wear black. They must, um, you know, if the, you are going to church, you had to, you know, bring a certain cushion to sit on. Um, you had to be carrying this certain, uh, you know, decorative uh, cane, if you will, for authority. Um, so almost in, you know, in several facets of colonial life, um, there are different expectations of how you are supposed to craft your identity based on materiality and, um, and, and even laws, you know, determining that you should do it this way, you should do it that way. Um, so it extremely, extremely prevalent, I would say, excuse me, um, in, in a lot of different facets of the Spanish empire. So I have so many questions about identity and I was trying to, um, not let my, um, natural comic come out when you were talking about some of the ways in which people had to present themselves in colonial America. Um, and I can't help but thinking just about Lisa Vanderpump and how she presents herself and even how she presents Jiggy, right? Um, there's all mm-hmm. kinds of implications that have really nothing to do with the long-term historical implications that you're talking about. It was just more of my, um, you know, you have to find humor even in the scholarship. so let's make kind of a rough transition but a transition nonetheless (laughs) and talk about um dorinda and sonia they had as you know quite a tumultuous season um season 11 on real housewives of new york so what does their continuous fight over sonia's identity as a morgan or according to dorinda a former morgan Tell us about the ways people perceive appearances and how they how we can relate to this or even to the people that you study. Yeah, so the argument, and I can't remember if it was on this latest season or the season before, but um, was about, and this in particular was about sort of the loafers. You know, one of the Morgan Crest, of, yes. Yes, the Morgan Crest loafers, which I'm extremely surprised to have actually come to fruition based on all of her several other side businesses. You're still waiting um, for the toaster oven too? I'm waiting for the toaster. Yeah. I'm just waiting for that toaster. Um, but in terms of these loafers, so the scene is, I believe they're in the Berkshires. Sonia's wearing these Morgan crests. You know, they've got a deer on them, I think. And Dorenda asks about them and Sonia says, oh, they're my crest. And Dorenda says, what crest? You don't have a crest. And Sonia says, no, it's the Morgan crest. This is my crest. And it goes on to be sort of this argument throughout the season that Sonia really identifies herself, you know, as a Morgan, as part of this very historical family. Um, whereas Dorinda, you know, realizes, nope, you're divorced. You're not part of this family. Your daughter is. Um, so this argument can really demonstrate the ways in which individuals perceive appearance as a marker of individual identity um, because it really brings to mind sort of um, this, you know, dispute between um, how, you know, how one uses goods to, you know, attach themselves to a particular family, to a particular um, group or whatever. Um, And in terms of of colonial Spanish America, it really brings to mind the disputes and complaints lodged against different, you know, uh, Costa groups um, and caste groups for breaking these clothing laws. Um, So much, you know, obviously very different, situations, um, the latter has a clear socio-racial component and much higher stakes um, than, you know, Sonia and Dorinda's fight. But it is this idea of a, one person utilizing material objects to portray a certain belonging to a certain group. 
So Sonia belongs, she thinks she still belongs to the Morgans. You know, you've got maybe a, a mesh, you know, a indigenous person that is wearing um, velvet when they're not, you know, you know, they're not cleared to do so. Um, attempting to sort of pertain to a different uh, ethnic group. So you've got, you know, two, two people sort of attempting to place themselves within a, in a different socio-racial um, sort of category. And you've got, you know, someone on the other side that is, you know, complaining, um, disputes this fact, um, understands identity in a much different way, but it is, you know, two different people attempting to, um, you know, hop into different groups using clothing, using material goods. Um, obviously, I would say, you know, historically, um, the clothing laws in Spanish America have much more of a, a an impact and um, sort of socio-racial connotations and understandings than, than Sonia Morgan and her dear, you know, loafers. But th- there is still a comparison that can be made between the two um, in, in some sense. So now it is time for our Bravo News Update. <laughs> So today's Bravo News story, I find this quite shocking. I'm not really sure what to do with it. I hope our panel today can sort us through this mess. According to Dolores Catania and Jennifer Aiden, who are on some sort of talk show, they say Jackie of Range is hands down easily the wealthiest housewife of any franchise of like all time. Jackie apparently was a real estate lawyer before she became an author who slags people on their parenting. And um, her husband is apparently some sort of investment broker. Now I tried to look up numbers for her net worth. Surprisingly, they don't exist. Um, At least that I can find. Um, But these two women were very clear that as far as they were concerned, she could pretty much buy over any housewife that she was just like dripping in wealth. And the people on the talk show were essentially like, Oh, so we have to like Jackie now. <laughs> like, <laughs> she's, like Maybe this is a reason to like Jackie. So she's this like is really redeeming? loaded. Yeah. I don't know. People on Twitter are like, Maybe we should like Jackie more. I don't know, right? Because of like this wealth. Because she has money. Yeah, like maybe it should change her money view of Jackie. Buy you class. That just made her. That just yeah. made me dislike her more. So my question is: Do we really think that this is true? And like, how are they quantifying wealth? Like, is this Jersey wealth that they think is that's my, that's more my like more wealthy than people are like in other places like i'm not sure so panel open up and i will i will say that if we actually look at 2011 um skinny girl was worth 100 million in 2011 and it's expanded way beyond that since 2011 so that's like not even all of bethany frankel's net worth circa 2011. So this is where I'm very confused because they they essentially alleged that like no like Bethany is like poor compared to Jackie. So what are we what are we what are we going with? I don't know the real well. This wasn't Jackie talking about her wealth. This was her friends talking about her wealth. Well, and obviously but, Jennifer isn't even a friend. And Jennifer right. was like, no, Jackie yeah. has way more money than me. But the wealth which I was like talk about hmm. their own money. So 
I don't know. I have this fantasy that I still want Yolanda Foster, not Foster anymore, Hadid, um, with her Hollywood money and um, Muhammad's money and David Foster's money. I want her to be the wealthiest, but I know that's not true. It is probably Bethany Frankel because of all her products. Well, and here's my other question, right? Like, how are we quantifying wealthiest housewife? Because is, is, is Jennifer's money really coming because her husband is an investment broker? Or is it coming because Jennifer herself is the wealthiest housewife, right? Because I would argue that someone like Bethany Frankel, like she's not sharing her wealth with anybody. This is part of the reason why this divorce with Hoppy Mm -hmm. is like so ongoing. And Camille Grammer has Kelsey Grammer money. I mean, I know Hollywood money actually yeah, but is a remember, real Remember, she doesn't have a house. She doesn't have a house. Well, this is true. Unless you go to Hawaii, right? <laughs> I know that On was the mainland. My, that was my yeah. One that was just one of the the lines I just couldn't. That she was so upset she didn't have a house when she's got at least two to three. Oh yeah, I caught your vacation humor. Home. I caught your humor. I'm here for okay, it. Okay, good. <laughs> Do we really even think Jackie and her husband are wealthier than the Dubros? Oh, I or even Lisa so. Rinna well, and Harry Hamlin. QVC money. I mean, do you know how many shellacked um, sweatshirts or comfort fitting jeans or whatever people will buy in the Midwest? I lived in the Midwest. I'm not. I'm just saying. I've been there buying from QVC. I I don't know. I mean, how many multi multi millionaires wear their name bedazzled around their neck? I mean, maybe more than we think. <laughs> I mean, I well, just Kim, have a hard Kim time believing have a Kim that Jackie's necklace. the wealthiest. Yeah, I'm not. I'm. A, I'm not going to buy that one either. Fine, she's the wealthiest, and we should tax the hell out of her. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, rich, yeah. rich and wealthy are two different things. Are we talking about assets? Are we talking about income? I just don't think any yeah. of us believe this. I don't. I, I don't, don't think I, Jennifer I don't know knows what it. she's talking about. You don't think Jennifer knows what she's talking about? Well, you know, it, it, it struck me no, because Dolores think... and Jennifer were on the couch together alleging this. Yeah, but, but do they really have a firm grasp of like, like assets, like personal wealth? Like, I honestly like, don't do think the really... Jersey women are anywhere near as wealthy as some of the women in other franchises either. But I could be wrong. Oh no, that's what I believe. I mean, yeah, I feel like Dallas has so much wealth that's unspoken. Cam Westcott, oh my gosh. The Richards. Oh, the her Hiltons. Beaver Creek house. The Hiltons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the, the Morgans. She's not, she doesn't have more money than Sonia Morgan's family. I mean, granted. Family. Yeah, I was going to say, if Dorindo's here, here she's like, yeah. it's not her family. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, if you're trading on that name. Yeah, if we're going to talk about who Like, do we think to. Jackie has more money than Luann? Totally. <laughs> but like, I could, yeah. I could take yeah. that one. But like, to to like really stake that she would be hands down without contest the wealthiest housewife any, from anywhere. I'm, I'm not sure. We would like to see the evidence. And how it's quantified. Yes. Yeah. Release your tax records, yeah. Jackie. <laughs> yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah. Release them. I'm going to call for that. Let's get that Twitter. <laughs> Jackie's so, like, what the hell is going let's on? Let's get the Bravo Demics on it, right? Let's get the Bravo Demics on it. So that's our Bravo news for today. Okay, which was news right. yet suspect. Oh, I, I do have news. I was I thought you were going to bring this up on Twitter, but uh, from one? Twitter, I mean, um, the Jim Edmonds called the cops on Megan Edmonds. Yes. Oh well, that's just oh, such I a messy divorce. That. Their divorce is so messy. So okay, so 
Megan and Jim are divorcing. Megan didn't even know that he was filing. She was under the impression that they were doing couples therapy, which actually is super shady because Jim had the divorce documents ready. (laughs) So she had no longer been like, she had no more than just said like, oh yeah, we're on our way to couples counseling. Then he filed. So like social media and various news outlets broke her divorce before she even knew anything about it. Which meant that he had to have been working on this at least weeks, if not months ahead of time to have everything ready to go, you know? And um, so apparently the cops were called on Jim at one point when he was trying to get stuff out of the house. I believe it was Megan's mom who called the cops on him. Um, I think now Jim has called the cops on Megan. It's very nasty. Jim at one point had said last week that he was going to try to work through it, but I don't think there is any working through it. It's all been very shady. Yeah, you call the cops on somebody, like, you're probably not going to be at Thanksgiving the following year together. I mean, yeah. if, oh, if, maybe, if actually. have they ever been to Thanksgiving together in the course of their marriage? That's Question mark. I mean, honestly, if Jessica was like, Casey and Max are divorcing, and I was like, what do you mean we're divorcing? <laughs> right? Like, we would have a big problem. Like, if someone broke the news to me that, like, you filed divorce yeah. papers and I had no idea. <laughs> If we're going to get divorced, the fact fact that Jessica brings it up to, did she hang up? Haley, are you still there? Yeah, sorry. Uh, Yeah, you cut out for a second. Yeah, I don't know what that was. There was like a beep and I was like, oh, we thought the the call dropped. (laughs) The police were at the door. door. Yeah. No. um, Oh my God. If that's how you're finding out, that we are getting a divorce. We have way bigger problems than who breaks it to you. You think I care? Like at that point? I was just meaning like if anybody else broke that news to me, right? As if like everybody else knew but me, which is essentially what happened to Megan. But the difference is the two of you are peas in a pod, left and right. I mean, you are together a lot of the time. This is a marriage where one person was in one city and the other person yeah. was in a had different time the, zone. Yeah. Had another time zone, right? So actually, she he might have already told her about it, but because he's in a different time zone, it but didn't catch up. Wow, that was a real dad joke. This is what happens when you have to wake up too early on the West Coast. Casey's yeah. <laughs> the morning um, person. Max and I are not. We are irreverent this early. <laughs> Um, you do you any of you follow Bravo Historian on Instagram by chance? We follow yes. them on um, Twitter too. Okay, they posted. I tried. To, I just tried to find it, but they posted something like last week of Vicky Gumbelson saying, um, "You know, you'll be divorced in five years." And it was and literally, it's literally the five been year. five yeah. years. It yeah. was so. It was so. Um, predictive it was probably all they could do to keep it to the five-year mark like megan probably wanted to do five five and a half years but jim was like aha jim just really hated vicky (laughs) (laughs) or no i guess he would have hated megan more if he agreed yeah Yeah, jim wasn't gonna let her have that that satisfaction no we made it five and a half years ah like five to the day pretty much yeah yeah Anyway, that's our Bravo news. All right. <laughs> so Haley, tell us what's next for you. What are you working on and how can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more? Well, I am just trucking along with dissertation research um, until December, 2020. Um, 
So it'll be a long haul for me. And then I am going to come back and hopefully finish that PhD before I turn 30. Um, yeah, it's going to, it's going to happen. I've said it out loud. Um, but yeah, people can contact me via email. Um, and would you like me to go ahead and give my email or? Yes. Okay. All right. So people can contact me via email at h dot m dot s c h r o e r at utexas.edu, which is a mouthful of an email. Um, or you can check out uh, my personal page on the UT Department of History's website. Um, it should come up if you just Google UT Austin and Haley Schroer. Um, you can keep a, you know stay tuned with my um, you know current projects that I'm working on and whatnot. But yeah, just keep your eyes out for that first book to be published in about five to seven years. So I'm waiting on bated breath. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for being here today with us. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thank, thank you so you. much for inviting me. It was fabulous. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Historians on Housewives. As always, you can find us at historiansonhousewives.com where you can propose episode topics, ask us questions, and send us feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at historiansh. And don't forget that you can like and review the podcast on your podcast platform. Thank you, Haley Schroer. This show is brought to you with support by Barbara and Mark Spear, Saddleback Community College, Christina Hinkle, Christina Gambapur, Judd Merlaski, Pete Murray, Yvonne Bellardes, Cody Baker, Molly Callahan, Dr. Joaquin Galarza, Courtney Crow, Lara Loper, Kim Bettendorf, and Louis Asio de Dios. And remember, scholars do bravo too. Wait, I have breaking Bravo news. How did we not talk about this? This is not news so much as gossip, but it came across the Twitters and the social medias that Andy Cohen, wait for it, said that when they started filming Ronge to begin with, that Joe had said something to the effect of like, how deep are you going to go? I think we talked about this on the podcast we did last week. We did? Yeah. Yeah. We talked about this. Mm -hmm. Was it just last week? Oh, look at that, Haley. You got a teaser. I'm excited. Yeah. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. 
One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.